up to that time. Uh, I've had a few phone conversations with this gentleman. Uh, I found him extremely entertaining on the phone. Uh, I picked him up from the airport today, and I found him very entertaining from 1 o'clock till we made it to the hotel. And uh, I'm sure anybody that came in contact with him at the hotel has had an enjoyable time, too. And, and I would just like to introduce Bruce T. from Nebraska City, Nebraska. Yeah. I'm Bruce Tolin and I'm an alcoholic. Thanks to God and a good sponsor. I haven't had a drink or smoked a joint or slept with a barracuda since January 27, 1980. I thought about it. I am from Nebraska. So I, I'm probably going to think differently than you do if you're from Indiana. So don't take it personal. Don't worry about anything I say because I don't know the truth. I uh, changed my mind about everything. This one? What's this one for? I'm okay. I changed my mind about everything about every 18 months. So whatever I tell you, I don't agree with it either, because I know I'm going to change my mind. So when uh, Phil and Jerry deposited me at the hotel, I made a list of topics I was going to discuss tonight, because Nebraska wasn't on television. I was disappointed. And, uh, and I picked some topics. There's actually 12. Coincidence. But... Twelve seems like a significant number. The first one I thought I would talk about are the people from Indiana, from my view anyway. And, uh, I mean, you probably know them better than I do, but I have a, the way I see them from where I come from and my experiences in Indiana have been unique. And so I'd like to share a little of that. Number two is I'd like to talk about the difference between an addict and an alcoholic. Because, uh, uh, I seem to have some experience with that, too. Number three, I'd like to talk about the first step a little bit. Number four, a little bit about surrender. Number five, a little bit about being agnostic. Number six, how I saw AA as a newcomer a little bit. Seven, working with newcomers. Eight, working with others. Nine, being a parent. Ten, Men and women, relationships, and sex. <laughs> That's so you'd all kind of stay with me towards the end. <laughs> Eleven, about people that set an example in AA. And twelve, abandon yourself to God. And those were the subjects I came up with while Ohio State and Penn State were playing. So... I, uh, uh, just a little bit about the people from Indiana. They are different. And, uh, uh, I've been out here quite a few times. And, and when I came out to, to, uh, Clifty Falls, that's when I got my first, uh, experience with people from Indiana. I find that they're a lot more sexually open than, uh, people in Nebraska. And, uh, because, uh, at Clifty Falls, you know, uh, I was provided prophylactics in a fruit basket by Halloween. And right away I thought, that's kind of an odd tradition, but I appreciate the thought. And, uh, and that's the truth. I still got them. I carry them in my big book. Thanks, Allie. <laughs> and uh, then when I spoke out of Clifty Falls and I met Liz, uh, I didn't know her very well, and she had this little line of women following her, and she came come up to me, and she goes, Bruce, uh, 
Uh, I always tell the girls I sponsor to come up and spank the speaker. <laughs> and I didn't know Hallie got confused when she was talking. And I, I said, well, I guess, you know, I didn't want to break tradition or anything. But... <laughs> so they've had a lot of laughs about that. So tonight I get there and some of her girls said, oh, we got a present for you. Guess what do you suppose it is? Oh, look great getting on a plane with this. So, uh, that's pretty neat, huh? So, you know, and then, and then people in Indiana don't listen to people from Nebraska either. They don't really care what we say or what we want. They ask to be polite. I know when I was going to the fall conference and I talked to her on the phone, Liz goes, oh, by the way, would you mind if when we pick you up at the airport, we pick up the Al-Anon speaker and you could all ride together? And I said, well, I'd just soon not. And uh, she didn't even pay any attention. And... Uh, And then today, you know, I get picked up by uh, Phil and Jerry, which, uh, and and we're leaving the airport and we're getting out of the parking garage and Phil shoves a twenty to this parking attendant and I said, keep the change. And, uh, nobody listened. So I figure, you know, what I say don't make any difference to anybody here, and nobody's going to listen or do anything about it, which really makes takes a lot of pressure off of me, because usually when you go hear people talk, in fact, you never remember what they say. You don't. I'll come home and I'll tell Robin, man, I heard a great speaker. She'll go, what did they say? And I'll go. And... You only remember how you felt about it, basically. So about the best thing you can really do for somebody is if you can affect them some way emotionally, you know. And uh, so with any luck, you know, after eating a chicken dinner and stuffing ourselves, I don't know if I can get anybody emotional either. So, so anyway, my experience with people from Indiana has been unique, and, and I uh, treasure it. And I'm sure when I have that paddle hanging on the wall in the family room, I'll, I'll think about it quite often. I want to talk a little bit about the difference between an addict and an alcoholic. I, I remember Tom O'Sullivan once said, you know, he was up talking, and he said, uh, you know, uh, one thing about an addict or an alcoholic, he said that's different, is if you put a hundred of us in a room, and every day he gave us a little shot of heroin, only every day he gave us a little more. He did that for a year. At the end of the year, all 100 of us would be addicted to heroin. But if you put 100 of us in a room, and every day he gave us a little shot of alcohol, only every day he gave us a little more, at the end of the year, six of us would be alcoholic. But all six of us would be absolutely convinced we were one of the other 94. <laughs> yeah. Now, I used to use drugs, and I just want to share a couple things with you about it to tell you, because I was a cowboy, and I used to hang around with some hippie friends that went to the Catholic school. And... <laughs> I was a Catholic kid, too, but they didn't let me go to the school. And and so we'd sit around in a circle, and we'd smoke pot. And being an alcoholic, I just did it different than they did. And I'd sit there, and I'd eyeball that joint as it went around. And I'd think about how big it was and how I was going to possibly try to get my share. And when it'd get around to me, I had a good set of lungs, you know. And I'd suck as much of that rancid smoke up into my lungs as I could. My eyes would be burning and watering, and pretty soon I'd cough and blow snot out of both nostrils. <laughs> my, my head would be spinning. I don't know if it's because I held my breath too long or it was a pot. 
First thing you know, them hippies didn't want to share with me anymore. <laughs> And I was the kind of kid your mama never wanted to have, you know. If you'd have offered me a horse tranquilizer, I'd have said, uh, sure, why not, you know. It's good for the horse, I'll try it. I was in California one time, and I was living in an apartment out there. And there was a couple girls that lived a few apartments down, and I thought they were quite attractive. But I could never really strike up a conversation with them sober. And uh, I just kept thinking maybe someday they'll notice me here. And one day one of them knocked on the door. And she, uh, I let her in. She said, hey, uh, we was wondering if you'd like to come try some angel dust with us. And I said, sure. You know, never thought about it being a dangerous drug or anything. And I went down and I watched them and they had this little joint. And they were going to roll and they sprinkled this dust on it and they rolled it up and Look, I'm sitting there thinking, that's awful small for three of us. And they pass it around, those girls that take a little hit. And they handed it to me, and I sucked about half of it up. And it went around twice, and it was gone. And I'm thinking, well, what are we going to do now, you know? Pretty soon I noticed my heart was racing a little bit. And I thought, well, you better try to be calm. Probably the angel death. So as I was being calm, I noticed I could hear my heart beating, and usually you can't hear it. And uh, So I made the mistake of looking down at my shirt. When I looked down, I noticed my shirt was moving. I should have never looked down. Once I did, I couldn't take my eyes off of it. First thing you know, I was getting out into the room. I don't know how long that went on, but... The next thing I remember was that I was stretched out on the couch like this, and I had one girl hanging on to each leg trying to hold me down. And I got up, and I said, well, I think I'll go now. <laughs> they said, how was it? Oh, great. great. And I'll bet I impressed the heck out of those girls. So that was the reason, that was the difference between an alcoholic and an addict. I could never be an addict. I could never moderate enough to use drugs. <laughs> Using drugs requires intelligence. <laughs> so keep that in mind if you're wondering, like, like Wino Joe used to say, you know. You might be an alcoholic if you've ever woke up in bed with a circus midget. <laughs> well, the first step, according to the big book, and some other members of A, I've heard him say, that the first step can be broken down into three basic components. One would be physical, one would be mental, and one would be spiritual. Now, the physical component goes like this, I understand, is that once we started drinking, we couldn't always control the amount. Now, what that meant to me was that once I started, things didn't always turn out the way I intended. For instance, I was out in Vallejo, California, and uh, I was in the shipyard, and I was off on a Saturday. So I was watching cartoons Saturday morning and drinking beer, which seemed like an okay thing to do, and I got hungry. And I thought, well, I'll run down to the Jack in the Box and grab a hamburger. So I drove down to the Jack in the Box restaurant, pulled my car right up where you give them your order into the little box, and I passed out. And... The next thing you know, there was a cop standing by the window and a whole line of cars behind me. And I woke up and I thought, you know, this is not what I intended. That's the physical part. 
one time I was in Bellevue, Nebraska, and I was at a at a dance, and uh, I passed out while I was walking, <laughs> and the next thing you know, I woke up in a trailer house in La Platte, Nebraska, in bed. I'd never been there before, and there was a German Shepherd laying on the bed next to me. <laughs> And a lot of thoughts run through your mind. <laughs> so, that isn't what I had in mind, you know. And then there's the mental part. And the mental part is the one that gets me. It's the mental obsession. And what that means is, when the mental obsession comes, I have no answer for it. For instance, there was a time in my life when when I was living out there by San Francisco, and my daughter was three years old, and I was at a bowling alley drinking, bowling on this bowling league or something. And I had my little girl, and I really loved being a daddy. That was about the only thing I had going for me. And I, I picked her up like this, and I threw her up in the air and went to catch her. And she flipped over my thumbs, and I didn't get my hands on her. And she fell face first on the hardwood floor. And it drove her teeth up into her gums. And we had to have some work done. And that was the last time I ever picked her up. And I'm going to tell you... At that point in time, that I knew I had done something terrible. And I knew that drinking had something to do with it. And I knew that I had to quit. But it wasn't very long after that that the mental obsession came. And when the mental obsession came, I drank. And if the mental obsession came today, I would drink. I am not sober because I have the ability to keep the mental obsession at bay. I uh, I can look at it a lot of other ways. It's like my anger. I've always had an anger problem. And I never have been the kind of person who will get up in the morning and say, I'm going to be slightly depressed till about 10.30. And I'm going into a mild state of euphoria till about five. And then I'm just going to mellow out for the rest of the evening. When my anger comes, I have no answer for it. And over the years in sobriety, I've found myself in situations where I might have one of my children. And I'd have them, my hands on each shoulder. And I would just be out of control, angry. And look into my kids' eyes and see the fear. And I want you to know I feel like an animal when I'm in that position. And I have no answer for my anger when it comes. I hear all kinds of people talking about the 10-second rule and this and that. You know? I don't have an answer for that. Just like I don't have an answer for the mental obsession. And then there's the other part of it. It's the spiritual part. What the spiritual part's best described on page 52 in your big book. And it says, we were having trouble with personal relationships. Now I'd been sober a couple of years and I was laying in bed sleeping. And I opened my eyes and I saw my wife standing over me with a clock radio. She was going to bash my head in with that radio. And I have no idea why. I mean, I was having trouble with personal relationships. And I had no idea why. You know? Couldn't control my emotional nature. You know? The anger, fear. You know? Sometimes I would hurt people's feelings without even meaning to. I was a prey to misery and depression. Couldn't seem to be a real help to other people. 
So that's the spiritual problem. That's really what AA deals with, is that part of the disease. The physical part takes care of itself. If you don't drink, you don't have to worry about the craving. And somebody else takes care of the mental obsession. That's where the next part comes in. First of all, I had to get to the point where I recognized the mental obsession. And for me, that was not easy. I went through years of getting a DWI, getting another lawyer. I'd always get another lawyer because I didn't want the last one to think I had a problem. And getting out of jail, paying everything off, broken relationships, divorce. I went through that. One night... It was January 26, 1980. It's the last night I ever drank. Didn't know that was going to be the case, but uh, my wife, we weren't married then. We'd only been together about four months, and like uh, we were talking tonight, she was about ready to bail out on me. And uh, uh, she had a Christmas party. She was a hairdresser, and this company she worked for, it was a, there was a bunch of salons, and when they had a Christmas party, it was a big deal, you know. And This was on a Saturday, and she was working, and I was supposed to pick her up at 5, and we would go to the party. Well, I had gone down to this little bar called the Purple Shanty to play pool while she was working. and So I was drinking beer and playing pool, and by 5 o'clock, I had uh, had a the physical problem had set in, and, and the manager of that bar took me home to try to sober me up, and I passed out at his house. And he called Robin and said, Bruce is not going to be able to make it. So she went on to the party without me, and about 7.30 or 8, I woke up and decided I had to go out drinking again. And uh, it was about 2.30 in the morning. I had an old 1973 Pinto, and I was driving down the road at a pretty good clip, and I ran into the back end of a parked straight truck. And it just so happens, probably the biggest cop in southeast Nebraska was giving this guy in the straight truck a field sobriety test at the time. <laughs> now, if I'd have been that guy, I'd have gone, yes. Take the heat off, you know. <laughs> they said there was a big fight. I got my face dragged over the concrete and worked over pretty good from the armpits down. And they took me into the jail and they allowed me to call Robin. It was probably between three and four, and so I made a call. And according to what she says, which I have to rely on because I had no recollection. She said I was talking to her on the phone, and she heard a bunch of obscenities, which I assume was me, and she heard some crashing, and the phone hit the floor and scuffling, and pretty soon an officer gets on the phone and says, he won't be talking to you anymore tonight. <laughs> and I kicked a hole in the wall at the police station, I guess. You got to get the picture. I was not a great fighter, and I wasn't often in fights. But I seemed to pick the most inopportune time to exert myself. I woke up the next morning laying in a little tiny jail cell with a bathroom stool right next to the cot. I'm looking at that stool laying on that cot. I mean, I got a lot of physical pain, but I've been there before. Got a bad hangover, but I've been there before. But something's different on that morning. Something I have no explanation for. You know, on that morning, I knew I had gone just about as far as I was going to go. I don't know why. I was like the cat that had sex with the skunk. I... I... I didn't get all I wanted, but I got all I could stand. <laughs> That's a sick joke. <laughs> yeah, sorry. 
So you know what happens to me when I'm at that point? You know, it's like uh, when I'm at that point, I'm I'm out of options. It's like I had uh, no idea. Uh, I just knew that I was pretty much on a road to nowhere. The funny thing was is that it's at that point that I surrendered. And what I surrendered was that I had no idea what to do about my life. I had no uh I had no earthly idea what to do. I had never known anybody in AA. I never heard of a treatment center. I mean, it's hard to believe. I even went to some form of treatment once and didn't even know where I was. And uh but I had no clue. As a matter of fact, if I'd have had a clue, I would have gone to treatment. You know, I'd have wanted somebody with an education working on me. What I did instead was Robin had this uncle that lived out in Massachusetts that has been in AA for 14 years. She knew nothing about it, but she said, yeah, my uncle's been in AA for 14 years. So we looked in the phone book, and there it was. So I called up the number. And uh, this lady answered the phone and said, can I uh, help you? And I told her, I said, I just, I need you guys' help. I think I'm an alcoholic. She said, well, we'll send somebody over. And so I hung up the phone and I waited for the ambulance. And I thought it'd be like a doctor and a psychiatrist. Too. I just knew that. It was some kind of a deal where when I got put on the assembly line, they hadn't tightened down one screw just tight enough or something, and I thought it was going to take some kind of serious medical attention. But these couple of guys come over, and one had been sober 14 years, and one had been sober a year. I could believe the guy that had been sober a year, but I thought the guy that had been sober 14 years had to be a liar. Either that or he never really drank. <laughs> so anyway, anyway, that's the day I surrendered. And I've had to surrender quite a few things over the years since I've been in AA. And uh, generally, I have about the same grace when I do it. Uh, I might be a little quicker to surrender today than I was a few years back. Maybe I'll uh, give you a couple examples later. The other thing I want to talk about is an agnostic. I'm just curious. How many people in here actually believe that they're agnostic right now? Raise your hand if you do. Not one. That's really... That's that's really just about the response everywhere. And I really didn't think I was an agnostic for years in AA, you know. And uh, But I went through a lot of life's little problems. I went through the marital problems Robin and I had fighting each other. And I used to come home from work and we'd be arguing and I'd go to the meeting. I'd have the weight of that argument on me and and all the anger in the house. And, and I'd talk to him at the meeting, and I would get these suggestions about what I could do. You know, one guy told me it was like basketball, you know. And if I just took care of it like the first three steps, the physical, mental, and spiritual part, I could touch her, not like that, but like that, <laughs> put my hand on her shoulder, and communicate to her physically. Let her Let her know that I was there. And, the, and I did that. And uh, she didn't know why, but I mean, I'd walk you by and I'd put my hand on her shoulder. And and the first thing you know, we started talking. And, and maybe after a while, I'd start caring. The only problem was that that was only temporary. It would work for a while and then we'd be right back where we were again. And over a period of time, I went through this circle. And the circle's like this. When you're at the bottom of the circle, that's when you've completely embarrassed yourself. For instance, you're standing in a garage with your teenage daughter and your wife. And you've just lost it and you've been hollering at your daughter 
And all of a sudden you notice your wife and your daughter's like walking away from you, not looking back. And you realize, you know, that they're embarrassed to be around you. And you're humiliated. And you're thinking, what the heck is wrong with me? Why do I do that? Why do I get so angry? I know they don't need that. And you get up the next morning and you're embarrassed when you wake up. And you get on your knees and you do your morning meditation and your prayers. And you go, God, help me not to act like an animal. You know? And you tell yourself, you know, I'll be willing to do anything today if I don't have to be that way. And immediately things start getting better in your life. Day goes fairly good. And for about a week, you know, you're kind of humble. And then things start getting good enough to where you're starting to feel it, you know. And maybe I don't, you know, I get in a hurry when I pray this morning. I want to read the sports page. And so I kind of get on my knees and I'm up and I'm over there and and uh, and things are going good in your life and you're at the top of your game and everything's great and all of a sudden you hurt somebody's feelings and you don't know why and you think, man, they're so darn sensitive, you know? Then the first thing you know, people are starting to get irritated with you and your wife and the guys at work and then all of a sudden you embarrass yourself and you're at the bottom. And you live in this circle and that's where we live, in this circle. And every time we go by, I always get a kick out when the guys I'm sponsoring or somebody I'm working with calls me and they're just mad at their wife. And they're telling me about it. And I always go, boy, have you ever been there before? Oh, yeah, man. I've been there before. So You hate it when it's like that, don't you? Yeah. They always know. You always know you've been there before. But the minute it starts getting better, you get we're the optimist, you know? got her whipped now you know and I live in that until I'm not willing to live in it anymore now the thing is over the years I tried washing more dishes I tried the physical mental spiritual thing I tried doing about everything I could everything that was suggested in order for us to have a better relationship and it didn't make any difference I was still caught in that circle you know it never occurred to me for one minute that I had no power over that stuff. Absolutely none. That there was nothing I could do that would ever change that. It's like the mental obsession. It never occurred to me for one minute when I stopped drinking that all I had to do was to ask God to take away the mental obsession, and he did. And I haven't had a drink since that day. And I know I've done a lot of stupid things. And hey, I've done everything wrong that could be wrong. If anybody should be drunk, it's probably me. Because I've made a lot of mistakes. But God's gifts do not have strings. But because I absolutely cannot imagine a God that would just help me without any strings attached. You see, that's the agnostic in me. Because when we fail... I would always feel the weight. I would always think it's my fault. I'm not trying hard enough. And believe me, there are not many alcoholics who don't try. I mean, they try. But we're agnostic. We absolutely cannot believe that God could change my relationship like that. Until I got to the point where I saw clearly I could do nothing. I had nothing to contribute. And I saw that I didn't really believe God could do it. I didn't really believe it. I don't know how many days I thought, if I just do a little better, it wouldn't be that way. If I just wouldn't get angry at my kids, it wouldn't be that way. I was so agnostic, and I still am in many areas of my life. I couldn't have believed I was an agnostic. When I was new in AA, A looked pretty bizarre, you know. I always think about the newcomers when they walk in and what they see. In Nebraska City, we don't get a lot of newcomers, you know. A few years ago, we had a guy that stole a car and ran out of gas in town. And we grabbed him, you know. And we were taking him to meetings. We didn't even want to turn him over to the cops. 
They had to ask it for him. And when you're new in AA, I remember when I first walked in there, I had no idea what it was about. I didn't even know what was wrong with me. You know, and I walk into this AA and I see all you people. You know, and first thought was, you guys look awful redneck to me. That's the first thing I thought. And then, well, I walked into this meeting, and, and, and it was that Sunday morning when I got out of jail, or that Sunday evening, and these guys had said, you want to go to the meeting with us? And I said, sure, you know. So I'm wearing my Navy pea coat, and uh, I got a conical cap pulled down to here so nobody can see, and my face is beat up. And I took taken a shower, but when you're drinking all night, along about 2 in the afternoon, that stuff starts coming back out of your pores. So I know I was offensive. So I walked into this meeting, and and uh, this lady kind of reminded me of Liz, maybe, a little bit. Wearing powder and smelled like one of my aunts, you know. <laughs> she walked up to me, you know, and uh, I'm standing there like this, and she puts her arms around me, and she says, I'm glad you're here, and I went, oh, God. Why is he touching me? I mean, I thought I was so offensive. I was offensive to myself. And and I thought, why did she do that, you know? And, and you know, I don't remember one word that was said at that meeting. Yet I came back to the next meeting. I often I'll tell the guys I sponsor, I go, you know, we always say God talks to us through other people. How do you think he touches us? I always tell them, you know, when you see somebody new come in, grab them. Give them a hug. Give them a handshake. You know, the guys don't like it when I hug them at first, but I don't care. <laughs> I always tell the guys I sponsor, I love you when I'm talking to them on the phone, too, and that's always funny. I was sponsoring this plumber from Peru one time, and I hadn't been working with him very long, and we were talking on the phone, and, and so... uh we got done talking, and he was getting ready to hang up, and I said, hey, I love you, Russell. And there was this silence on the line, and he goes, he goes uh, I appreciate that. I love you guys. You know, it's not popular today to do certain things like You know, a lot of the right things to do are not popular in the world today. It's really true. A lot of the right things to do are not popular. And a lot of people will tell you the wrong things to do. They will. You know, you need to listen to that compass. You know, you know it's... I mean, people would rather see you sue than forgive. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you, that's just the way the world is today. And I used to go to these meetings, and I remember the third meeting I went to, I was scared to death, and I was sitting there with Robin, and this lady got up, and she was leading the meeting, and said her name was Alice. She said, today we're going to have the meeting on sex. And I went, oh. <coughs> and so I thought, man, I mean, it's bad enough I got a drinking problem. And so it's come meetings, they're, they're passing it around, and, Robin gets up to go to the bathroom hoping they won't call on her and she gets back and they called on her and she said, I'm with him. And and then they called on me and I said, I, I'm Bruce and I'm an alcoholic and I don't know what to say about sex. I like it. <laughs> I, I had... You guys totally confused me, you know. I thought, Geesh. I was looking for answers. <laughs> a was a comical place, you know, through the eyes of a newcomer. I, I remember how people used to kind of gather after the meetings and talk. And, and, you know, I had that newcomer paranoia. I was the kind of guy that would go to the football game, and when the players got in the huddle, I'd think they were talking about me, you know. <laughs> I uh, I thought they're all talking about me. I know they are. <laughs> then I saw the word God on the steps on the wall, and that, that about sent me out. I thought, oh, man, 
I can't do this goddamn. I mean, I remember when I was a little kid in the Catholic Church, you know, and and I thought surely I was the only sick little kid in that whole church. And I wouldn't even tell that priest anything. You know, I'd go in there to confession with my spiel every every time I went in there. It never changed. I mean, if he'd ever noticed, I said the same thing every time I went to confession. I wouldn't tell him nothing real. You know? I figured he'd throw me out of there. So I don't know. I felt different, I'll tell you. And I felt different in AA. And to tell you the truth, I was absolutely convinced that I wasn't going to stay sober. You know, I'd go to the meetings, and you guys looked so good, and I felt so bad. I mean, I went for two months thinking... There is absolutely no way that I'm going to stay sober. I just couldn't believe I would. Just totally contrary to everything the world will teach you today, you know. you got to have a positive attitude. How many newcomers come in with a positive attitude and stay sober? None of them. They're out of here, you know. The guys that stay sober and the gals are the ones you never think are going to make it. You go, geez, they're so sick, they'll never make it. They just stay and stay. Sponsors are trying to work with a newcomer who's been five days sober, and they try to tell them everything they've learned in five years and five minutes, you know. And the guy can't even remember his name. Then they'll come to me and they'll go, he lied to me. And I go, what do you expect? You know, we're supposed to lie. We're alcoholics. You know, alcoholics don't tell the truth for a long time. Don't expect them to tell the truth. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they tell the truth. It doesn't matter what they tell you. You're not supposed to be listening to them anyway. I go, just, you know, what happens is they'll be sitting around the table at the meetings, and one day, after a couple months, they'll accidentally tell the truth. And it scares the heck out of them. They'll go, what did I say that for? The guys, the newcomers are easier to work with. You don't, first they don't, you don't have to tell them very much. You really don't. You're better off if you don't, you know. And you just, I love people that are desperate. I feel safe around desperate people, you know. People that are desperate got nowhere better to go. You know, when they ride with you to a meeting, they got nothing better to do. They sit in that car. They listen to what you say. I love people like that, you know. I had trouble with friendships, you know. If you got more than two or three friends, first thing you know, they gang up on you. But you give me a newcomer any day, they're you, they're reliable. You can trust them. First, they're always going to lie. They got nowhere better to be, you know. What more do you want? And there's working with the guys that have been around a while, and I have more trouble with those guys. They don't think they're agnostic anymore. They think they know what to do now. They got it under control. They think they're working on their defects sometimes. I used to work on my defects. You know? That'll make you tired. <laughs> then I had to. Then you got to do the life thing. I really liked what you said about life. You know, having to deal with life pains and sobriety. That is a different deal. I mean, it's, uh, you know, having a teenage daughter, having to go to the grocery store and search through all the different brands of maxi pads without letting them know, trying to figure out what type it is. I mean, I would never imagine myself in those situations, you know, and then, and then I don't know anything about parenting and, and, and my kids. You know, if they bring home a report card, I spent my first, you know, quite a few years focusing on the low grade, sharing my fear with them, telling them they were going to fail, you know, saying, you better work harder. Like, they don't know what they have to do to get their grades up, so I'll tell them. Never focus on the good stuff. Never come from love, you know. I always come from fear. I say, I'm afraid you're not going to be okay. Instead of saying, God, you're crazy. I know you're going to be okay. You are awesome. You'd be surprised what a difference it makes over a very short period of time to just go to your kids and notice how creative they are. 
and just notice and focus on that and spend your time and energy going, you are so talented. You know? It makes a tremendous difference. See, the reason I can't do that is because I have all these old ideas and all this fear. And I think I'm running the show. You know? I told a story here a year or so ago about my daughter, you know, and I was going to help her with fractions. And she was having trouble with fractions, and I'm good at math, so I sit down and I explained to her how to do fractions. She didn't get it, so I explained it again, you know. She didn't get it, so I explained it again. And she didn't get it, so I explained it again. And she didn't get it, so I explained it again. And first thing you know, she was mad at me. And then Robin was mad at me. And then I thought, well, the heck with it. You don't need to know fractions, maybe. Maybe you can go through your whole life without knowing fractions. I don't know. Maybe it doesn't matter. I'll let God teach your fractions. So I quit. A couple months later, she came up to me and she goes, Hey, Dad, she said, I'd like to get a job. I'm going, well, there's not a lot of jobs out there for 10-year-olds, you know. <laughs> so we're thinking about it, and I said, well, maybe you could start a business or something. And I'm thinking about lemonade level. She goes, what would I do? And I said, I don't know. It has to be something you like or enjoy. She's going, well, I like to read. I'm going, I don't know, maybe you could sell books. And I thought, well, that was stupid. She goes, well, I'd like to do that. And I said, I don't think so. And I go, she goes, well, why not? And I said, well, you'd have to be able to sell them at wholesale so you could sell them cheap so people would want to buy them. How would I do that? I said, I don't think you could. I said, if you was going to, you'd have to get permission from a publishing company or something. She goes, how would I do that? And I said, I don't know. I mean, I wish I'd have never said nothing. So... <laughs> um, oh. A little while later, she comes in with this Nancy Drew book, and it's got the address of this Putnam Publishing Company, and she goes, I'm going to write him a letter, and I'm going, oh, And the first thing you know, Robin's going, what do you got her doing? And I said, I don't know. I wish I'd have kept my mouth shut, you know. Like these people in New York are going to have time to worry about her, you know. So she sends off a letter and says, I'm Lacey Tolan, you know, and I'm 10 years old and live in Nebraska City, and want to start my own business selling books. So uh, three weeks later, this letter comes back from New York. This lady that's the inside director of sales goes, gosh, we're really impressed somebody your age wants to start your own business. We'd love to have you as a wholesale customer. <laughs> said, you'll have to get a tax ID. And she goes, how do I do that? And I said, I, I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, there's a tax guy down the street. Go talk to him, you know. So he gave her this form to fill out, and she filled it out. So I called the banker. I thought I better get involved. And uh, I told him, I said, well, she's starting a business, and she probably needs about 40 bucks startup cost, and I can give it to her, but she just will borrow it. What the heck? And so he said, all right, send her down, you know. So she went down, and he arranged a loan for her for $40, and she opened up a second account. Bought her some business cards, you know, that said Lacey's books and gifts. And parentheses underneath says books are a kid's best friend. And she started selling a few books to her friends. Well, after a while, she ran out of friends. And so, uh, so I tried to get her to make cold calls, and that just made her mad. She didn't want to do that. So I thought, well, what kind of kid would want to do that anyway? First thing you know, we thought of a couple kids, and she went out and hired some sales associates. And so they sold books, and you know, she bought a few things, paid off her debt, and then kind of retired that fall. <laughs> but the moral of the story is, if you're figuring, you know, 40% under retail for wholesale, and you're going to sell it at 10% under retail, and you got to pay 6% sales tax, you think you might ever learn fractions doing it? <laughs> I mean, she can do fractions like nobody's business. <laughs> Funny, ain't it? Kills me. <laughs> See, I'm a parent. I'm a parent. I'm going to tell you what. You know, I haven't got a clue. I'm the most inept parent I know. 
but it's but it's a privilege, you know. My kids are uh, unbelievable. My son, I'm uh, for the second time in my life, I'm coaching one of his teams. The first time I coached one of his teams, he broke his right arm before the first game, and I ended up coaching a bunch of little kids that aren't mine. <laughs> so this year, I decided to coach flag football, and he fell off his desk and broke two bones in this hand. So I'm coaching a bunch of little kids that aren't mine. <laughs> and I really, I'm not coaching that much. As a matter of fact, they they asked me to be an assistant coach, and I said, well, I I, I got to go out and speak these weekends, and and I'm not going to be there for every practice. And they're going, that's okay, that's okay. And I figured out what the deal was, is that they get Adam with me. And they didn't really want me. They wanted my son. So anyway, that's that's what I know about parenting. I can tell you this, you know, that, that I need to be more loving and more positive with my children. And I don't have what it takes. And the only reason that I ever am is because... Uh, is because God's given me just a little bit of an edge. Just a little edge over the anger, you know. I know it hasn't been me. Then there's the men and women. Men and women are different. I've learned, I've studied the deal. I watch Robin a lot, and then I watch the young men I sponsor. They bring young women home like trophies occasionally. Can I keep her? And the way we do relationships, you know, we, I mean, I got the sex deal is the funniest, you know, because it's all about sex for us in the beginning. I mean, that's, uh, we think it's love, but it's really something different. We all got this thing in our gut. And it's like a, it's, it's what they say, the big hole with the wind blowing through, you know. And it seems like young guys in A that I sponsor think that longing has to do with the opposite sex. And they think that the right girl would just fill that hole, you know. They really believe that with everything they got. And, and they go around looking for the right one, you know, and they find her. But then after a couple of weeks or months, and all of a sudden they've, they've uh, kind of some of the lust wore off. And they notice that she's got a few bad habits, and she notices they have her does some things that are irritating. And then all of a sudden, you know, they they realize they got that hole still, and they go, she wasn't the right one. And they go out looking again, you know, it's a funny deal. And you can't tell them no, because they won't listen. You know, they'll even come to me for advice, and I refuse to give it. I've learned. Should I do this? I go, do you really want to know my opinion? Yes. And I'll tell them my opinion, they'll do the opposite every time. So I know it's a trick. So I don't tell them my opinion, you know. I'll say, it's going to be a great experience for you, and you're going to learn a lot. You know, I encourage you to go out there and find out what you can. Come back and report to me how it goes. And that works a lot better. My wife, you know, I never understood. Robin and I went through a lot. And uh, we did a lot of fighting. And she uh, was in Al-Anon for a while and then she was out. And I thought, you know, that uh, I thought, well, maybe this is it. She got out of Al-Anon. I thought, maybe that's it. Maybe that's the end of it. And uh, then we it seemed like things weren't going too bad. And then her dad had a stroke, massive stroke. And they were living out in Washington, D.C. And we uh, spent everything we had and a whole lot more to build a wheelchair apartment in our basement. We moved him out. Took care of him for a year and a half. And he died. I'd go down and give him a shower. And I hated doing it. But I loved doing it. It was really weird. I, I'd think about it. And I'd go, I don't want to do this. And I'd go down there. And there was a lot of tension and brought a lot on her home. And I thought, what have I done, you know, to our family? And, uh, you know, something happened. I, I, I can just remember the day it happened, you know. Robin, Robin come in, you know, I got home. And see, the way I was, first of all, I didn't understand her. 
I really never understood her. I never understood what she wanted, needed, or anything. And I came home one day, and for some reason I wasn't afraid. And she said, you know, having my ma down there, it's just like it was when I was a kid. And for some reason, I didn't explain to her what her mom was going through and how hard it all was and all that. I didn't answer it. I just said, what was it like when you were kid? And she told me. Talked to me till three in the morning. Told me all about it. It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable what she went through. I not believe it. And I had no idea. I'd been with her for 13 years, and I knew nothing about her. And you know what I did? I stood still. I stood still. I let her tell me. And that's the difference between a man and a woman. See, I always wanted to deal with it. I wanted to provide her a solution. She knew my solutions were stupid, and they would just make her mad. You know? And and all she wanted to do was just tell me. Not for me to put my stamp of, this is what you need to do about it. This is okay. This is not okay. And the minute I listened, it changed our marriage. And I began to understand. Men are different. We're like hunters, you know? We'll go shopping to the mall. Robin goes, I want to go get a blouse. And I used to think she meant it. So we'd go to the mall. And... We go to the gro- we go to the store and I'm feverishly looking at blouses and she's over looking at something else and I'm thinking what's she doing over there? I'm a hunter man. I'm here to bag a blouse. Now there. Now she's there for the experience. She relaxes when she's doing that stuff. You know? We had a big fight one night. We were in Nebraska City. And she just took off somewhere, and I'm sitting there with the kids. And a few hours later, I said, well, I'm going to go look for Mom. I don't know why I do this. I mean, I know her. She's not like this. But I drove around to the little bar. <laughs> she was out at the outlet mall. I thought, when I got home, when I got home, she was there. I said, where was she? She goes, the outlet mall. And I go, huh. Why would she do that? <laughs> Weird. We're different, man. But you know, something's happened. It's like the edges on. You know, she used to get mad at me and she'd be mad for two weeks. I didn't know it was me. You know? I didn't know it because I couldn't hear. I mean, we'd go in bit angry in our house, man. It was heavy. You know? Now she just can't stay mad. It's the craziest thing to get mad. And I just, I don't know, I just love her. And when I love her, she can't stay mad at me. It's crazy. I'm so handsome. <laughs> I don't know what it is. But I'll tell you, it's a gift from God. It really is. You know? Men and women are different, you know? Uh, talk about setting an example. I wanted to talk about this guy, you know? I had a guy that helped me when I got sober. He didn't sponsor me for two years. I would never ask this guy to sponsor me at first. But I asked him to hear my fifth step. The reason I asked him is because my sponsor told me, you're not ready. I didn't realize my sponsor probably hadn't done his yet. (laughs) But, I mean, I was one desperate guy at that point in my sobriety. And I thought, i got to do a fourth and fifth step or I'm going to just come apart. So I went and I found this guy. A meeting, and this guy had MS, he could barely get around, and every other word he said was a swear word. Nobody liked him, hardly. And I, I got him, cause he was the rottenest guy I knew, and I thought, you know, maybe I can share my fifth step with him, and, you know, he won't judge me too badly. That was my thinking. I was such a brilliant thinker. And, so I asked him to hear my fifth step, and he was very gracious, you know. And uh, I never forget because I'd been writing my fourth step, you know, and and I was writing it in code just in case Robin ran across it. <laughs> and uh, and really, my fourth step at that time was a confession. It wasn't the kind of fourth step I would do today. 
said it was a lot of stuff I hadn't looked at, you know. It, it did some good, let me tell you. But I wrote it in code, and, and I'm writing, I'm about ready to tell him I'm ready, and all of a sudden I, it, this thing popped into my mind, this one sick, sexually perverted thing I had done. I'm out of my path. The minute I thought of it, I thought, oh, God, I can't tell that. I knew I had to be honest. I gotta forget this thing. <laughs> so I tried to forget it. You ever try to forget something? The more you try to forget it, the more you think about it. I was like a dog chasing his tail. I was going crazy. And so I, uh, I finally called John. I said, John, I, uh, I gotta do this thing. So John said, well, alright. They'd come over tomorrow. I said, fine. I hung up the phone and stood there for a second. And I said, I can't wait till tomorrow. I picked it back up and called him. I said, John, I can't wait till tomorrow. I'm going crazy. I mean, I'll grab somebody off the street if I have to. And he goes, well, come on over. And I mean, he was married. I know he had things going on in his life, and he really did. And I know it's not always convenient. But he did. He took the time. He said, come over. So I shared all that stuff, except for that six sexual thing right right down to the very last and then I I kind of let it out <laughs> and of course this guy had been in prison for 16 years on the installment plan he uh I mean he shared a few things with me that made me feel like an amateur almost and so after that I started using John and, and I, I just want to talk about the example he set for a minute for me number one the guy was physically disabled he had pain every day that I knew it, you know? And and I was a kid who was angry, and I respected no one except maybe him, and I don't know why. And and I would just be just totally crazy. You know, I was at work one day, and Robin and I were just having a time, and I picked up the phone, and I called John from this little phone booth we had in this power plant where we worked, and I called him, and the phone rang, and he had been vacuuming his floor with his walker and everything, and he reached for the phone, and he fell. And the phone fell, and the walker fell, and the vacuum fell. I hear this crash and bang. I'm waiting, and pretty soon I hear, hello? And I go, John, where are you? I'm on the floor. And I said, how long you been there? And he goes, just got you. And I said, well, you want to put the phone up and get up? And he goes, nah, I'm here. I'll talk. <laughs> I couldn't remember what I was going to tell him. I mean, I couldn't even remember what it was. I was going, John, gee. I, mean, I know I had a problem when I called. You know, he, he'd make me so mad. But I had that old pen, and it was kind of funny because my brake lights were always on. I never did know why. But he'd get in the car and he'd ride with me and I'd have to get his walker and his gizzy all in the car and he'd be holding on to everything and and then we'd be driving down the road. He'd look at that brake light and he'd go, what is that? I'd go, it's the brake light. He goes, you ain't got no brake? He said, no, they seem like they're all right, John. I said, it's just, I don't know, the light, the light just comes on. It bothered him. He'd be all braced. We did that for a year. One day he got in the car and we're driving down the road and he goes, Oh, you got your brakes fixed. And I go, No, light burned out. You know? <laughs> I was an alcoholic, man. I don't fix my brakes till the car won't stop. That's the way we do it. What time did I start? You know? Now I'm getting close here. But John, he was a prince. He's a prince of a guy, you know. I uh, we just had some times together. I mean, I one time he got so mad at me, I thought I just started crying. And I mean, I'm not the kind of guy who's particularly afraid of most people. But John, I was at a meeting and I was angry, you know. And I would do that. I would just have a wave of anger come over me. And I was sitting at the meeting. I was angry. I have no idea what I said. But John said, "Will you give me a ride home?" And I go. How the hell did you get here? 
I wish I had never said that, man. It's like no time. I had my car out in front, and and I had him in there, and he started talking about when he was in prison. He started talking about anger. And the first thing you know, I knew he had my nails. He had me nailed. He knew exactly what I was doing. He knew exactly how I was feeling. And I was driving down the road crying. Because another human being knew me like nobody else ever had, you know. And it's really, it's really amazing, you know, that because uh, this guy, uh, for for the reason that I asked him to help me, you know, would be an insult. You know? And you know, I I can only hope that someday maybe he'll get one of these tapes or something, you know, because I got I respect this guy, you know, his. It's tough living with him, yes, it really is. He's a progressive. And, uh, so anyway, John set an example for me. He'll go to meetings early, he'll pick up chairs, he'll do all that stuff. You know, and it hurts him to do it. And the last thing I want to mention is the thing in the vision for you where it makes a little paragraph and it starts off to say, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. You know? I just want to talk about the word abandon yourself. That part of it. To abandon yourself means to forget about your plan. Now, I'll watch. We try so hard to get God to do what we want Him to do. I mean, we try hard. And we think we're doing it. I mean, we do. We can, We fool ourselves. We think we know what's right. I think I know what's right for my kids and my wife. Because it's really important. I think I know what they need. But to abandon myself to God means to give up on my idea of what I think is right. To say, God, it's yours. You know? And that's that's been a hard thing for me because I'm always a schemer. And, I'm, and I don't, man, I don't abandon myself easy. I'm stubborn. I work hard. I leave dead bodies along the way, you know. I I do not know how to do that. But I'm going to tell you that everything good in my life, in sobriety, has been a complete surprise to me. It's been nothing I planned. Every miracle that's happened in my sobriety has been a total and complete surprise. And I'm getting to the point where that's what I expect. Yeah. And actually being here with you in reality is a total and 